Thanks be to God for that word, and thanks be to God for each person who shared with us today, for Brandon and for Lauren and for our band. Um, If you are so moved, if you are the praying kind, would you please pray with me? God of grace and mercy, God of forgiveness, God of meditation and of prayer, God of moving our souls, God of comforting our hearts, be with us today. Help us to know your presence and help us in those moments where we do not feel the feelings to commit to your presence, to live like what we know is true is true, and to continue to be in community with you and with one another. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, and if they aren't, help us to notice and to turn around, and to take our second and our third and our 70th chance in you, who is always calling us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In another life, another professional life, another life of me and who I was, um, I did a lot of interfaith work with young people. My job was to take groups of young people who were of different religions and no religion, and teach them how to talk to each other about stuff that mattered. And those rooms were all really different. Sometimes we would be coming together across really a lot of lines of difference. We'd have people who were in every possible situation and of every possible background. And sometimes I'd be in a room that was mostly one tradition, right? Almost everybody would be Lutheran, but it would turn out that they were Lutheran in different ways, and it was causing awkwardness. Sometimes that would be among groups that thought that they already knew each other well. And sometimes it was people who were in active conflict where a harm or a trauma had occurred against one person or one faith. And we'd come together and we'd try to talk. And the first thing we did always when we got together was we would set some ground rules for the conversation. Not for life, but for this time, for this time, what values do we think should undergird the way that we talk to each other? And there were a lot that would come up basically every single time. Um, One was, you know, no name calling. We were really going for the basics here, (laughs) basic rules of human interaction. One was what uh, a lot of our our young people like to call Vegas rules. What we say here stays here, right? Doesn't leave. Um, But one that I would always have to add, because often people wouldn't come up with it, but I think it's really, really important, is that we would plan for how to apologize to one another when we messed up. Not if, but when. (laughs) Because I think a mistake we make when we have hard conversations, hard conversations where we're trying to be brave, where we're trying to learn, where we're trying to say something new, is that we set as the goal perfection, to not hurt anyone, to not say the wrong thing, to not be an error in what we say, when in fact we are human and we are almost certain (laughs) to cause harm when we talk, to have ignorance in our mind and hearts. And what's really important is that we know how to recover when we do, that we know how to say sorry, that we know how to repair, that we know how to take ownership of where we've messed up. And so we would use this thing called the oops ouch rule, which was as we're talking in a group, um, if at any point something is said that gives you that feeling, right, of an electric shock, of like something, something bad just happened to my soul, <laughs> something that just happened that makes me uncomfortable, 
but you don't know if you can talk about it, if you can be the person to bring it up, be the person to have the fight, you say, ouch. And then that's a sign to the whole community. We need to stop and figure this out, what just happened. And the community will do it together. And if you alternatively say something that you then realize, oh, that did not come out how I meant it, or that was really harmful and I didn't even understand why, you could say, oops. And that would be a sign to the community, oh, this person has begun to understand their error. Let's take a pause and talk about it. And I say that because I think that's not just true of intentional spaces for courageous conversation. I think it's true of most of human life (laughs) that half the battle is preparing to apologize to one another when we mess up. Because not messing up, it turns out, is not on the table of being human. (laughs) That's not one of the options that we have. And I say that because it's one of the things that I love about this Matthew passage, um, this Matthew passage of how to handle it when there is harm, when there is error, when there is breakage in relationship. It's actually, it has a lot of beautiful things to say about how we treat each other and how we come towards one another when we sin against one another. How do we have that conversation in ways that are healthy and life-giving and remember that we are fully human And whoever has harmed us or who we have harmed is fully human. It's important to remember that because a lot of the beauty of this scripture has gotten lost (laughs) in how it has been so misused as the basis for church discipline. A phrase I won't even use because I think it's a bad idea. (laughs) Um, It has been so, so used to harm people. Um, Some of you may never have heard this scripture before. I grew up in a religious community where this scripture wasn't really used to say a lot. But I know some of us have grown up in communities where this scripture was used all the time to justify really, really traumatic and painful interactions. Um, I would guess, you know, our testifier, Brandon, shared a story um, in his testimony of someone coming to him and having this conversation that left him in such a a place of trauma and harm that person, right, might have been thinking of this passage or a similar thing that they were taught about why that was an okay thing to do to approach somebody. We have multiple people um, in this community who have shared with me that it was Matthew 18 that was used when they were put into conversion therapy um, as the excuse for why this was an acceptable thing to do to them as an adolescent. I once went to a church when I was living in Mississippi, little old family church in the middle of a cotton field It was a church of like 20 people maximum, and they all knew each other so, so well. Uh, And, you know, we had worship, and we had music, and we had these beautiful parts of the service, and then the sermon started, and the preacher started pointing at individual people and telling them what he perceived to be their sins, Right? So he points at Sally and he says, Sally, I saw you at the club Wednesday night. I know where you were. I know what you were doing. You need to get right with God. And he points at Jim and he does the same thing. And I mean, it is one of the most um, difficult things I've ever seen. Right, And I think in this community, probably they were thinking, oh, this is Matthew 18. Right, This is loving one another. This is what accountability looks like. But I think that's actually what like, power and control looks like. Uh, that's, that's what harm and thinking that you're God looks like, and it's not the intention of this passage. So I want to get back to, like, what can be loving and life-giving about this? 
because there is a lot it has to teach us about how we approach one another. So I want to just go through line by line. Let's bring up this scripture and talk a little bit about what it can show us about how we come together, both as a church community and as a community community, and handle conflict and error and harm and forgiveness. So the first thing, if another member of the church sins against you, one of the things I love (laughs) about this passage is that we have been fighting over it since day one. Um, The most ancient texts of Matthew, like the very first Matthews we have from the first and second century, don't have this phrase against you in them. It was a very, very early edit (laughs) from some editor who already saw I think somebody's going to misuse this passage, right? They read it and they thought, if another member of the church sins, go and point out the fault. I don't know if that sounds good. I'm going to add, you can only do it if they sin against you. (laughs) So from the beginning, we have been sort of like editing and changing and saying, is this really how it works? Is this the best way to do it? From the beginning, we've been fighting about what does it mean to approach someone who you think has caused harm? But if another member of the church sins against you, So you don't need to take on, you know, um, this person's sin. You don't need to take on what you think someone may have done in another context. But if someone has harmed you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Now, there are situations when a person has harmed you in a way where talking to them alone uh, would be a further harm to you. And I think this is just not what that is inviting you to. But I think what it is saying is, We human beings are really, really afraid of the hard work of relationships, right? We're really afraid of the hard work of being in a relationship with someone over time, which means hurting each other. And so when someone harms us in a way where it actually would be safe for us to be alone with them, that would be okay. Like, we wouldn't be at harm. We don't have that feeling. Something still inside of us says well, wouldn't it just be easier to complain to my friend about what they did than to talk to them about it, (laughs) right? Wouldn't it be easier to just go around and vent, right? This is what we'll call it. We'll call it, oh, I'm just like getting out my feelings and then I'll be totally fine with them. I'm just gonna like go to a couple friends after worship or I'm gonna go to a couple friends after coffee hour and just tell them how crappy this person was to me and then it'll be all out and then I won't have to talk about it again. We're very good at telling ourselves the lie that we can get through relationships and have deep relationships without doing the hard part, which is talking about the hard stuff um, and talking about the stuff that is awkward and is strange and is difficult. And so I don't think this is so much about secrecy and shame, right? If there's something that you're feeling like, I should only talk to this person because I can't let anybody else know, that to me is... um, a sign that something else might be going on, right? Uh, that, that something dangerous to you or them might be happening. But it's about approaching, approaching them one-on-one rather than going around them, rather than thinking that you can have your relationship with someone, with anybody else but that someone. This is, uh, this actually, UBC is actually very, very healthy in that way, but when I talk to my pastor colleagues, something that'll happen a lot is that people in a church who are having conflict with each other but who, don't, who are worried about what will happen will come to you, right? And they'll say, oh, he, he did such a horrible thing to me. He's so awful. Um, and, and what I often tell young pastors is um, th- they'll feel a, an instinct to fix, right? I'm sure this has happened to you at work or at school. You feel an instinct to fix or to gather. Um, but asking someone, have you talked to them about it yet? 
is a really healthy question that I think the beginning of Matthew 18 is inviting us to. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others in a group so that there may be witnesses. So this is about um, thinking that we're accountable to communities and not just to one another, that mediators and arbitrators might help us have conversations. Part of what I ask about this is, um, does each person get to pick a couple of people who are in the room, right? Um, who gets to decide who the witnesses are, who the gathering is? Uh, it, it, again, it all depends on who we are, on how we use it. If we use this advice with cruelty and harm in mind, it will be cruel and it will harm people. If we use this advice with love and care in mind, it will be loving, it will care for people. I think the root to be drawn out of it is that when more of us are gathered, we have more ideas, we have more love, we have more resources, resources of care, resources of support. Often a conflict between two people is it's hard to find forgiveness or it's hard to find a way forward. Um, it's hard to figure out what's right if those two don't have either the emotional resources to, to face one another and be in the same room with one another, or they don't have the resources to solve the problem. And so bringing in others can be helpful for that process, but not if it's only to shame someone or only to hurt someone again um, or only to gang up on somebody so that they're alone in who they are. This to me is the most dangerous and easy to misuse step. Uh, and so I would encourage you to think about um, if you ever think of using it, is, is, what, is what you think is going on really what is going on? How are you holding yourself accountable as well as somebody else? But if you are not listened to, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Many of us in this room who are Gentiles may take initial offense <laughs> at this phrase. Um, let such a one be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Uh, I think often when people interpret this, they forget that it's Jesus talking, right? They forget that it's Jesus giving us the message. They hear, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, and they think that that's an insult, right? Exile them, hurt them, treat them like they're, sh like they're bad. <laughs> um, Right? I'm trying to work on my swearing a little bit. <laughs> my kids are starting to pick up on it. Um, right? Uh, uh, let them be something bad to you. But it's Jesus talking. How does Jesus treat Gentiles? How does Jesus treat tax collectors? Does he treat them like they're nothing? Does he treat them like they're worthless? Does he treat them like they aren't worth his time or his conversation or, or um, his community? No. Jesus, when he interacts with Gentiles and tax collectors, has dinner with talks to, is open to, loves, and recognizes that they aren't a part of his community. <laughs> and so the level of intentionality and accountability is different, right? This is basically saying, let them be to you someone who you still treat respectfully, but who you know has a different role in your community, which is a different thing to say about somebody than has often been said. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is my favorite part. If two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Jesus' real presence is in our communities. God's real presence is in our communities. It is found wherever we gather together. 
in a couple of different ways. One is that whenever you are in conflict with a person, right, whenever you have harmed them or they have harmed you, both of you continue to be the image of God in the world. Neither one of you becomes nothing or destroyed by having made a mistake. Neither one of you becomes nothing or destroyed by having had someone treat you like you're less than. Right? All people remain the image of God and the presence of Jesus, no matter what has happened between us. And this must be remembered. But then there's also this additional gift that God is giving us, which is God is saying, I show up in community. <laughs> I show up when you get together. My kingdom of heaven isn't something that I do alone and separately from you. My kingdom of heaven is a reflection of who you are, and I will be coming to earth to make whole you, <laughs> not to make different some other people. The kingdom of heaven is what you are already doing, plus my grace and love. Whenever there are a few of you, I am present I can change things. I am seeking to be reconciled to you and for you to become transparent windows of my love and mercy. And too often, people have taken that to mean because Jesus matters a lot, all tactics are acceptable for me to make someone say that they love Jesus. This is how people have interpreted, right, that, the heaven, that heaven and earth are together, that we, what we bind will be bound up, what we loose will be loosed up. They hear it as a call to bind things appropriately, to make good law and enforce it hard. I think it's actually the opposite. <laughs> this is God encouraging us, what people do matters to me. What people do is a reflection of my kingdom, is a reflection of who I am and my nature and you need to loosen as many things as you can for my people. When you, the church, when you, the people, bind people up in their hearts and their souls, tell them they are less, cage them in prisons of shame and fear and harm, you are doing that to heaven. You are doing that to me. Take it really, really seriously. There may be reasons down the road for you to say that someone cannot be a part of your community, but it better be the very, very, very last resort. Because when you say that to them, you are saying it to me, and you are saying it about the heaven that we all share. To me, this is not a command to bind more, but to loose more and to say, where are the spaces in the world where we can release people from the, the boundaries that have been put up between them and the kingdom of heaven, between them and God. And there are times when it's not appropriate for us to be in community together, when people have created a lot of harm, and it's not okay for them to be in a church with the people they have caused harm against, right? Uh, Elaine Ramshaw, this theologian, I was reading an article shortly after this passage that we're reading today, this um, uh, how to approach conflict and, and harm uh, is the, another famous passage on forgiveness that we read a few weeks ago that Jesus calls us to forgive seven times 70, right? That like the, the amount of forgiveness never ends. The amount of God's grace never ends. And she points out in church history, because we're humans, because we're people, um, we are subject to the harms and oppressions and prejudices and, and lies of the world. 
And so as the church, we have often chosen seven times 70 to apply to anyone who had power and chosen approach a person first to anyone who was powerless, right? Um, So if someone comes before us and says, my spouse is abusing me, the church has said seven times 70. But if someone comes before us and says, I have caused great harm, but they have power or money or status or they're white or they started the church, we have said, oh, there's this long process, right? Let's approach each other. Let's make sure that the victims of your harm talk to you. We have chosen to use these models of forgiveness in ways that build up pre-existing harms against one another instead of ways that tear them down and allow for the kind of reconciliation and the kind of kingdom of heaven that God invites us to. And Elaine asks, she said, what if every single time someone in the church had known that someone in their church was being abused, we had told them that Matthew 18 was what they were supposed to think of and not 7 times 70, right? Um, What if... What if we thought of forgiveness as a wellspring that changes how we are with one another instead of as a way to paper over interactions that are uncomfortable? There is no scripture that you can find where it doesn't matter whether you pray and have intention in how you use it. Turns out you don't get out of the hard parts of human life. It can be as plain as possible and still you have to ask yourself, Where is Jesus? Where is love? Where is mercy? Where is power? And how I'm choosing to apply this scripture to my life. You have to ask yourself the hard questions. You have to have the hard conversations. But once you do, once you decide, no, I'm I'm not thinking about this because it's an easy excuse out. I'm not thinking about this because it gets me out of a hard conversation. I'm thinking about this because I love people and God has called me to them. There are ways to use it that'll change your whole life. Because I think one of the gifts of having a plan to apologize, a plan for how we repair harm, (laughs) a plan for how we come together when things seem to have broken apart, as they always will when you're in human community, someone's gonna really, really hurt you, and you're gonna really, really hurt someone. You're gonna be really mad at somebody at this church, and they're gonna be really mad at you because that's what it is to be human and to be people. Having a plan for apology and a plan for coming together makes us realize that that's not a sign that we've done something wrong or a sign that we're worthless or a sign that we're depraved, but simply a sign that we've done the human thing again and we need to do the other human thing again, which is to come back together and figure out what it would mean to move forward with a God who says, in me, all things are possible, including reconciliation, forgiveness, love, and the elimination of shame and fear, where you have only thought that those were the ways that humanity could know. So I'm grateful for this scripture. I'm grateful for the God who writes it. I'm grateful for the Jesus I meet in my life. And I'm hoping to find more and more ways where I approach people bravely about what I've done, about what they've done, and about the ways that I truly believe God can make us one forgiven and forgiving community together. Amen.